I'd like to have my guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself? My name is Errol Fox. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm a non-binary person who's been working in the technology sector as a designer for around about 10 years now. I call myself a designer because I've had lots of different titles. I've had UI designer, UX designer, but I tend to just go with designer now. It's a good catch-all Fantastic. And what about outside of design? What do you like to do? Oh, wow. Um, I'm a big gamer. So I love playing games. I love reading. I love to travel now. I do a lot of traveling for both my work and for fun now. So that's really, that's really great. Um, I am really involved in community projects still. So the most recent ones that I am involved in, they sound really worky. It sounds like the things that I do in my spare time are kind of work related. I've always had this like problem separating the two, but I do volunteer work for Tech for Good, um, a women's and non-binary gender non-conforming tech group in my local city where I live in Bristol in the UK. And I do lots of game jams and I volunteer for the Pride Festival as well. So a lot of my hobbies, apart from gaming and reading, are kind of proactive. <laughs> I love that. I was looking at your your website and just so impressed by the organizations that you work with. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit more of how you found these organizations, got involved with them, what what it's like, and maybe how other people could get involved. I've been involved in community work for as long as I can remember, actually. So my path into the design and technology industry is kind of a weird one in the sense that it's non-linear. I did a fine art degree, although my fine art degree in the UK was uh, one of the sections of it was something called time-based media. So it was actually using technology to make art. So I kind of uh, straddled the art and tech world very early on. And after I graduated, I, I realized that making art was a good thing for me to have, you know, exercised a muscle that I was enjoying exploring as a young person. But I realized it wasn't really something that in a practical sense would sustain me as, you know, in livelihood kind of way. So yeah, I got really kind of lost after university. I was like, am I an artist? What am I? Kind of did some jobs. But then I got connected up with community projects by my careers advisor in the alumni section of my university. She, she introduced me. And that was really my first step into the world of what it means to be part of a community in a lot of ways. And it not only helped me get more connected with my local community, it offered me the the insight into different cultures that I probably wouldn't wouldn't have had and wouldn't have found that interest if it, if I hadn't gone that route. So I got into community work through that and then I also developed my design work as part of that community work. So as soon as they found out that I was somewhat technical, like I could code a little bit and I could design, I could use design software. A lot of the things that they were asking me to do alongside my regular volunteer work were, were design related tasks. So they really helped me actually learn how to become a better designer as well. So that was super cool. Um, and then 
it kind of just became part of my life. You know, I got really, really like a lot of, what's the word? Like fulfillment, like a lot of depth of like belonging to a particular, not necessarily a particular place, but groups of people that really shared like ideas of trying to make even like a small part of the world, your local street better. I met people that were running homework clubs for kids and I helped them with that and people running environmental groups and I helped with that and kind of just got more and more involved in as much stuff as I as I could in my spare time. And yeah, it, it turns out to be environmental stuff, uh, education stuff, art stuff, photography stuff, then like council meetings and all those kinds of things, which really informed the path I'm at now, actually. And can you talk about that a little bit more of what you're up to now, where you work, what your team is like, stuff like that? At the moment, I work at a humanitarian nonprofit tech company that makes mostly open source software. Uh, The name of the company is Ushihidi. That's a Swahili word, and it means uh, like testimony or raise your voice in Swahili. And this is a Kenyan-led organization. The founders were three Kenyans, and they were actually three Kenyan bloggers. So they weren't actually really deep in the technical side of tech, but they really wanted to create a piece of open source software in response to the first democratic elections in Kenya, a data collection platform to collect reports and insights and feelings from real citizens around the the elections cycle. So anything from threats of violence at polling stations right through to tampering of ballot boxes and things like that. And uh, that was 10 years ago, 2007, 2008. And that was the first um, project that Shahidi made. And I joined the team two years ago as one of the designers on the staff. And that was my first job, like a paid role in nonprofit. So previously, most of my community work and my nonprofit work had always been either bits and pieces of freelance work alongside my corporate and commercial uh, work. Yeah, really just volunteer work. So it was it was not something that I was used to the idea of being both a designer in nonprofit and also it being a tech nonprofit as well. It's a really unique organization. Uh, the team, the team, they're fully remote. So we work from anywhere in the world. Uh, a lot of us are based in a lot. A lot of them are based in, in Kenya, um, in Nairobi, the capital city. And we have people based in South America. We've had people in the US, Canada, New Zealand, lots of Europeans, uh, India. So yeah, everyone's been spread out across the world. And that really is something special about Ushahidi. They really, they really value the idea that you, that remote organizations, what it can do is you know, it spreads, it spreads a lot of the team effort as well across time zones. It can be tricky sometimes. Spreading the work practically is, is really good, but also you're spreading a knowledge and an understanding of humans across the globe, right? So people experiencing humanitarian problems uh, that tech can solve in India are going to be very different from East Africa, are going to be very different from Europe, or are going to be very different from the US. And what Ushihidi 
recognized really early on and wanted to support through remote working was this idea that you could bring all those different diverse perspectives into the work that we were making. I think it's really important to to hear you share what you do for work because we in the tech and design communities and, and all the overlap there talk a lot about working ethically mm. and bettering the world. And I'm really just think you're like the best example of like somebody that's working both with nonprofit groups, with groups for the oppressed and for working on things like election stability. I, I think it's amazing uh, what you do. And I think more people should be paying attention to what options are out there to do work like you. Yeah, this is something that I get quite a lot, actually. I do I do a lot of um, speaking um, about Shahidi's projects and some like personal topics that I'm really interested in. And one of the things that people, designers, usually ask me a lot is, how can I, how can I find a, a role in nonprofit tech? And it comes from this sort of sense of desperation that I also felt. So actually, um, going back to my pathway into specifically this role, I left my job at a startup um, about three years ago, and I took a break to finish a master's course that I'd um, started previously. And before this startup job, I was working full-time in a different commercial tech company, corporate tech company. And I was also caring for my two parents at the time. One parent had a terminal cancer diagnosis and the other parent was a chronic illness. So like a long-term mental illness that really severely impacted their um, their physical health and their mental health. But my, my parent that had cancer was the primary carer for my other parent at the time. So when they became ill, it's always really tricky when you have one person caring for another person and then they need care. So I actually became a carer, split, split the effort with my sibling. They had recently had a child. I think their, their kid, my nephew was about six months old at the time. So they were, they had their hands full being a new parent. And I found myself very quickly in a very intense caring role alongside trying to, you know, maintain my established tech and design career. And I learned a lot from being a carer. I think that one of the things that a lot of tech companies could do well investigating or what's investigating is probably not the right word, but being aware of is the kinds of things that people, humans learn when they have experiences and what that means when you bring that to, when you bring those skills to your, to your role, especially as a designer, the kinds of skills that you build caring for somebody are very transferable over to research work or, you know, when you build rapport in user, user-centered interviews, especially if you're doing technology that has, um, you know, a kind of a humanitarian purpose or a healthcare purpose or a really sensitive topic. Um, but I went back and finished my master's and my master's was focused on technology for palliative care. So for people that were dying and I took this break from corporate tech where I was designing things to sell to people essentially to take their money in some way or another, sometimes doing it in a way that gives them a useful piece of software, but mostly a lot of what I was being asked to do in a lot of my jobs were 
a lot of the things designers will find familiar, you know, this, these kinds of, oh, let's upsell, let's sell more of this, let's do, do more of this, let's make sure they get these communications and all this kind of stuff. And I had that break while I was uh, finishing off my master's and, and really uh, digesting what I'd learned from being a carer and putting that into kind of technology experiences that could improve the role of a carer, but also the role of the terminally ill and also the roles of the professional healthcare people and looking at like kind of at the time things that were interesting like AR and VR and hospice care and all this kind of stuff. And after I finished that master's uh, project, I was like, oh, how could I go back to selling stuff to people that (laughs) don't necessarily need it? Or, you know, I had a lot of reservations about moving back into a world that, you know, when I when I was doing those master's projects around that, that subject matter, I was like, but I could be doing this kind of stuff. And why am I, you know, spending time doing, being paid for, you know, things that don't help. And I thought I'll give it a few months. I'll see if I can find somewhere that, that I can, I can practice that more. And if I can, maybe I'll consider a different career potentially in something that can kind of give me that sense of helping fulfillment, you know, uh, and I realize now retrospectively looking back a lot of what I was missing from when you're a carer, it tends to take over as much of your time as it possibly will. If you, if you're not careful and I'd lost a lot of that connection to the community that really, that really kept me like personally healthy so I was trying to find something in a in a job role that I could have found, you know, uh, elsewhere as well, like in a community work. But I remember finding the Ushahidi role and, and being like, ah, oh, you know, this is exactly what I think is, is a perfect role. You know, humanitarian tech sounds like the perfect melding of my my interests in doing good stuff and design and, and tech. And it was, but... What I learned through my time at Ushahidi is is that a lot of a lot of um, people can have this, uh, myself included, can have this this um, warped perspective of the nonprofit sector, and especially tech nonprofit. I, I think it's really hard to hear, but nonprofit and tech for good is is another kind of flavor of you, you know it's not fully corporate it's not fully commercial they're not benefiting uh, like primarily around the stuff that they're making but there is there is a structure to it there is the grant giving machine and there is you know still sort of rules and and i guess you know not to dance around the subject but still unethical practices that happen within nonprofit. so you get you get funded to do a specific kind of thing and it might not actually be the thing that best benefits the the audience or the or the people that need the help most and a lot of when i have this conversation with designers that are like ah nonprofit tech work as a designer it's perfect it will it will sort of stop me from feeling you know this kind of cog in a machine of selling stuff to people and i said well you know a lot of it is good and you will be doing 
often better things than, you know, organizations that are focused on people as numbers. But there is a different way that nonprofits and, and third sector and charities view, you know, numbers. Of, you know, it's all about what impact are you making? And it's what's making the most impact for the grant donation dollars. So it can get a bit, it can kind of burst that bubble a little bit. It's not to say the work isn't meaningful and you're not doing really great stuff to like help democracy or, you know, help crisis relief. Like the work that Shahidi does is 100% making the world a slightly better place, but it, it's still within a structure which is difficult at times and unethical at times and will really challenge you still. So it's tricky. <laughs> I'm sorry that about your parents' health problems, but it's amazing that you turned that into sort of like a silver lining and then turned it into really a career shift. And speaking of that, maybe you could share a little bit just because this question comes up a lot for myself and people I know in the design community about going to grad school or not. Tricky. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It reminds me of a conversation that I had when, so I'm, uh, as I said earlier on, I came from a fine art degree and I realized after community projects that I really wanted to become a designer. I, I thought I love creating work, creating creative work, but I like it when it solves a problem and solving community problems, it kind of helped me discover that. But I remember going to a meetup for designers in my local city um, when I was like, oh, I want to be a designer and I'm going to go network with designers and it'll be great fun. And I remember I, I was super nervous. This was back when networking was uh, not a skill which I practiced and oh, it's always nerve wracking. I think there's it's always better when you can you can find a natural way to be in a group of people and still kind of achieve whatever networking aims you have. But I remember being super nervous. I went up to these people, other designers, and I, I said, hey, you know, you know, how are you? What do you do? Et cetera, et cetera. And they, they said that. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm looking to become a designer. I'm, I'm very new. You know, I've done a few bits and pieces and all this kind of stuff. And they said, oh, so where did you study design? And I said, well, actually, I didn't study design. I studied fine art in this university. And they said, oh, why are you here? And I was like, oh, I'm not, am I not supposed to be here? But I really want to be a designer. Anyway, so I think part of me, even when I enrolled in the master's, even though when I enrolled in my master's, I'd been working as a designer. Uh, I was a middleweight designer at the time in my first uh, company that wasn't a internship. And I enrolled, I think, in a lot of ways to really prove to myself that I could complete a design part, some design education, and part to learn some new skills. The design masters that I did was actually a really, really great practical course. It was less, it was less research-based and more practice-based. And it was local and it was paid for by my company at the time. So there were lots of benefits for doing it, financial benefits and practice benefits and, you know, um, getting outside of my team at the time. So I had a team that I was working with, but the idea of learning from other people in a class was appealing to me as well. Um, and doing different projects was appealing. So I think I was in a unique position where it was really, it was really a great opportunity more than anything. But I think that if I would, if I would choose again, uh, if I didn't have the financial 
help from a company. Um, so this was a scheme where you do the course for however long it is, they pay for it, and then you work for it a certain number of years afterwards, um, and then they, they write off the cost, which is amazing if it's, if it's offered. But I think if I was going to choose again, I would be really, really critical about what, what I would choose and what I would, what I'd be looking for. And I, I think, I really do think part of me was, was really determined to have a piece of education on my resume, which, which clearly said, yes, I am qualified to, to be doing this, or at least, you know, I've completed this course. Uh, that was what it was like at the beginning. Uh, by the time that I was finishing the master's, it was much more of a, it was much more of a course where I was given the opportunity to explore the kind of projects that I did, which is why my final final major really focused on that tech for good in the healthcare for, for the terminal illness, um, very personal project, you know. So I really would recommend that it be something that you think very deeply on, think about the opportunities that you may or may not have presented to you and think about the reasons why you're choosing to do that. And I think the reason, the strongest reason that I can think of was that there was a sense of not feeling, still not feeling like I was part of that profession, even even though I had been working in it for a number of years. It was kind of a bit imposter syndrome-y. Um, but it, I have to say, it didn't cure the imposter syndrome for me. So I got a lot out of it, projects-wise and growth-wise, but the reason for doing it was probably not what I ended up getting out of it. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a great answer, particularly. It kind of gives you maybe a little bit around just, you know, really digesting the reasons why you might think that you want to pursue anything really in the in the profession. I think I think that was a great answer. And I think it was really nice to hear your perspective on it. I'm sorry those designers treated you horribly <laughs> saying, why are you there? You know, it's such a, a privilege to go to university. There's it's like 6% of the world's population has access to a college education. So mm. I think designers shouldn't shouldn't feel ashamed if they don't have a design degree. Oh, no, exactly. I completely agree. In fact, a lot of what I say now, I recently, I mean, I did a, a talk this week in, in at Ladies That UX Tokyo, and one of the people came up to me afterwards and asked me about UX design, because a lot of people go to these meetups like Ladies That UX or the local UX meetups to really like try and feel like they could be part of that profession. And a lot of them tend to be, you know, part of a marketing department or maybe any kind of other professions. And I get, I've had so many people ask me, you know, is it okay that I don't have a UX uh, profession, like title, course, certificate? And I was like, well, I, I definitely don't have a UX certificate. <laughs> I kind of, I feel like UX design, particularly as a, a, a subset of like the design designer roles, in a sense, is one of the ones where actually you tend to bring other qualities and often like more better qualities to UX when when you have a background of like uh, social social sciences or psychology or English and uh, English literature or language or maybe even a foreign language and um, or any kind of um, 
other professions. And I think that that's because really when I was talking to this person, also they said they were a parent and I said, ah, being a parent as well is a great, it brings a lot to UX design because you have to be very problem solving and um, perceptive when you're a parent. So, and they, she was really shocked that I said being a parent is a good <laughs> segue into UX design, but um, it is, you know, in a lot of ways it teaches you a lot, but yeah, curiosity and a questioning nature is often what I, I say is best for for that side of design. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's definitely not, I, I really think that design has more recently in more recent years become a profession that is more, much more welcoming, uh, to diversity of background or, um, no, no educational background. I think it's, it's, it's really about how you approach problems, how you're, building your curiosity of the world around you, the humans in it that are using things that you want to make better. And that's often a tricky thing to really teach is innate curiosity. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to stop asking you about your CV. I promise. We'll <laughs> switch gears real quick. Um, some people really like to talk about design tools. Do you mm. have strongly held opinions about any? Ooh, I mean, this is tricky. And this is another thing that I will say is tough about, say, nonprofit. So at the moment, we've just finished up a, a really cool project with um, at Ushihidi uh, called Open Design, which is focusing on why designers don't necessarily contribute to open source software as, as readily as people that code do. And this was in partnership with Adobe. Uh, particularly the Adobe XD team and a, a the global design agency uh, design it. So <laughs> Adobe XD and the people that we've worked with are actually incredibly well-meaning and pretty chill about this in that they, they haven't like in any way, even though they funded us, they haven't said you can't talk about other tools ever, all these kinds of things. But, you know, sometimes in nonprofit, when you get a grant from somebody, it's, it's you know, it's kind of tricky to, to talk about any other um, potential competitors, but they're, they've been super cool. And also understanding that open source software and the design focus towards it really needs to be tool agnostic. So tooling is something that perhaps, again, I, I have a very agnostic approach to it. Like I think that I'm always excited by new tools. The ones that I get most excited about nowadays are the open source ones. So there's one, I think I, the icon is a cactus and I'm pretty sure it's called cactus with a K. And this is an open source design software that's being built at the moment. Um, there's a few other open source design tools as well that I've used in the past that people will probably find familiar and they might even chuckle when they hear them, me say them, but GIMP and uh, Inkscape, they're, they're both open source, you know, free to use. And you might not think of them as like a designer's tool of choice. You know, you might get people talking about, you know, Sketch and Figma and Adobe products and all this kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't discard those products as excellent software products. In fact, I've had really amazing conversations with the, the people, um, at the, the team at Sketch and the, obviously the team at Adobe and some of the folks at Figma as well. I've had great conversations with them around open source, uh, but also in general, like their, their stance towards making tools more accessible to people that don't 
or can't or would never be able to access them. I had this really fascinating conversation with the folks at Sketch and Adobe, not so much Figma yet, but I had a conversation with the UNHCR um, innovation team, which comprises of a few different digital professionals and one designer. And I had this uh, conversation with them about the work that they do in refugee camps. And refugee camps tend to, uh, in lots of different places, tend to train people really well, actually, reasonably well. And a lot of what they focus on is uh, tech skills, like so compute, computer science skills. But they really do focus on coding. And they see coding as like the, the way to build good skills for refugees when they re-enter um, into where they settle um, to try and you know give them a really a, a great potential um, career. But what they don't offer is design skills um, and design education. And that, a lot of that is because the computers um, and the, the hardware in refugee camps can't often run some of the really intense design packages. And even if they could, the refugees, when they leave those areas, would probably not be able to afford a machine that would run these things or the software. Um, and what they do, what what people, refugees that are interested in doing design work, or not even just refugees, but people in um, the global south, uh, you know, these the developing countries are often referred to as developing countries or the global south. And lots of kind of potentially problematic terminology that I don't, it's really hard to find better terminology for, but basically um, countries with lower access and, and more it's more expensive to get a hold of hardware or software. But a lot of those folks are making amazing stuff with things like Canva or Inkscape or GIMP, you know, because they are able to use those things. And I really am so deeply passionate about the access for them will only become easier when us as the privileged designers can start to prioritize the improvement of those tools as well, the tools that they're using and not mocking them as good tools, but also putting pressure on, on um, the people that make tools, the, the companies, uh, Adobe, Figma, Sketch, the other ones um, that are creating different tools, but putting pressure on them to do, to do more, to make things accessible. So uh, yeah, maybe maybe a stance on tooling, which is a, a little bit controversial. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> no worries. What's one piece of advice for people just starting out in design, and maybe specifically if you feel like a design in nonprofit and social benefit? Ooh, I think with nonprofit design technology. Uh, here we go. Yeah, this is definitely the one because this actually comes from the nonprofits. Okay, so nonprofits are kind of, even if they're tech based, they're kind of still a few years behind commercial organizations, commercial companies. A lot of nonprofits are just starting to hire in house designers or even having like more than one designer on their in-house team, starting to understand that that those designers internally can offer more than just graphics or illustration or, you know, the things that are very easy to attribute to design. So they're starting to understand that design can really input strategically into campaigns and products and services. I think the one piece of advice that I can give designers looking to 
volunteer for or try and build a career in nonprofit uh, or humanitarian tech is to definitely come from the perspective of support, supporting and education and building design literacy alongside what you can offer. So definitely not kind of waltzing in uh, to these organizations and saying, I can solve all your problems with design, because a lot of them don't have the capacity to begin to you know, manage your contributions as a designer, whether it's voluntary or, or, um, or paid. You know, you really have to understand the pace that this sector moves at and push in a compassionate way, but understand where the limitations are. And a lot of the time, the limitations come from policy. So just, you know, government policy that is, hasn't quite caught up or the, the grant funding structure is very often very strict. It will say you have to deliver certain things. And if a designer can't work within those constraints and gets frustrated with those constraints, um, then it will only frustrate the nonprofit more. And really what you're there to do is to try and improve things in what ways you can and find the really innovative ways to improve lives. So I would say definitely, yeah, this, this perspective that design can do so much to improve lives, but that the capacity in the organization is, are limited at the moment. So to be really, to be really aware of that and learn more about that before you uh, head into these uh, organizations. I think that's great advice and might be applicable to my next question. What's one piece of advice for more senior designers? Mm, I would always, oh, my first piece of advice for, for senior folks is to mentor always, um, is to actively reach out to younger career designers. And by when I say younger career designers, it's not always younger in age. Um, it's about people that are moving into the design sector from other sectors and generally just being welcoming and open and supportive of what your what your um your function and your craft is so because you have that if you're senior you have that luxury that privilege of something like stability so either it's financial stability or it's reputational stability or it's you know organizational stability you've got some often you've got some sense of establishedness within either the industry or your organization and the best thing that you can do is build platforms and bridges for other people to move into either you know the junior positions if they are available in your organizations or the voluntary positions if you're if you're looking for interns or or educate and and offer as much knowledge as you can opening opening up your your time or knowledge um or both is 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 always my first piece of advice for senior people now the design industry is wonderful and there's a lot of great qualities but on the flip side there's also racism and ableism and ageism and queer phobia and bigotries of other kind what tips do you have for fighting and resisting all of those awful things or or any one of them that you feel like you're more prepared to talk about i do a uh... It sounds like a plug. I guess it kind of is a plug. One of my first talks um, that was well received by people is is a talk called Diversity in Design. And it's really about how to how I've strived throughout my career to really 
um, advocate for dis- uh, diversity in a lot of the time, uh, a lot of the examples, visual design and how really the opportunities are conceptually endless for designers to really advocate for diversity. You know, if we're illustrators, why aren't we illustrating more diverse kinds of people in our illustrations? And if we're photographers, why why aren't we, or we're seeking photography, why aren't we finding more more people that are representative of, of people that we don't re- usually see and all, all these kinds of things? And it's something that I'm, I'm very focused on and very passionate about. But as far as tips for designers that aren't part of a marginalized group, it kind of maybe would be different. The tips for folks that are marginalized, so are, you know, either a person of color or a queer person, LGBT, um, or have um, an impairment or any intersection of these. I think my advice for those folks would be different. And it's it's always allow yourself respite and allow yourself to not always be the people responsible for educating to give yourself a break basically and to seek out support within the community because often we're we're often few within small organizations or even within large organizations we're often relatively few or 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 the organized the our ability to organize and coalesce together is is often not supported or not explicitly supported like given very like intense resource for so it's the is that the advice is that you can take time for that and it's it's okay to to be doing that but for people that aren't marginalized that are, are part of the the privileged um group i would say i always i always say to educate educate yourself as much as possible so read widely um, of many, many different people, ask, can, ask questions, but be willing to, I think, be willing and happy to be told that you cannot, somebody could not answer that question for you right now. I think a lot of what I've experienced as a marginalized person, especially around, you know, different, different things around design is, you know, answer this question for me, like, why should we not include gender in our form capture and, you know, kind of really probing the reasons why I'm recommending a certain design aspect that's based off of like experience of being marginalized. And sometimes you're just not ready and able to answer those questions right there. So it's for the people that want to know the answer to those questions, know that they don't have, they, they, sometimes the exhaustion of the marginalized is, is so very real that you cannot, you, at that moment, you might just be like, okay, well, this is my design recommendation. We can go into this at a a deeper level, uh, another point, but right now let's, let's move on to another subject and we can revisit this. Like just be willing that 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 is uh, how somebody is protecting themselves. So it's, it's that kind of, it's that compassion for that experience and, and why somebody is asking you to, to kind of shelve your, your kind of curiosity for that moment. If we wanted to uh, check out your diversity and design uh, talk, is that available online anywhere? 
It is, yeah. I've given it a few different conferences. So luckily it's been recorded a few different times. And it's one of those ones that sometimes changes depending on how much time I've got at a conference. Um, but a lot of the time the content is is fairly fairly consistent uh, with a few different examples. So yeah, you can find them online if you search for my name. So just Errol Fox and Diversity in Design. You should find a number of the different conferences that I've spoken at. It's um, one of the ones... Uh, that I spoke at was ID24. So that is the really amazing conference that happens across 24 hours and it's purely online. And it's got a real focus on diversity and inclusion and accessibility. It's run by some amazing folks. Um, One of them is Leonie Watson, who is an amazing advocate for um, accessibility, web accessibility. So um, that is a great, it's it's available um, through that conference for sure. Oh, fantastic. I will uh, put that a link in the show notes for everybody. And if someone that's listening is involved with a conference and they were interested in having you come speak, is that something that you're still doing in the future? It is. Yeah. Um, so I love to, yeah, I love to go to conferences and share whatever knowledge I, I have. I've got a few different talks that I, I give, um, diversity in design, Uh, One of them is about open source design alongside my fellow opensourcedesign.net community members and also designing for crisis scenarios as well. So, yeah, you can find um, some of my talk pitches on papercool.io. I think it's papercool.io. And you can also find a speaking section on my website, which is my website. A URL is erroldustdesign.com. Fantastic. I will also link that in the show notes. Who is one person that the listeners should know about? The person that you really should be paying attention to right now. And this kind of feels like cheating because they are a good friend of mine. But I think, you know, I think that's allowed. Uh, There's a person called Joanne Boyce, who I... I've worked with um, on the Open Design Project. And she runs her own... A digital social media agency and she's really dedicated uh, to the diversity from a person of color black black perspective she's she's a black woman in technology she is is a speaker on on the subject of how to be better at uh, including people of color and black people in your social media and marketing efforts and things like that I really recommend you you check out Joy, Joanne Boyce. She runs an organization called The Social Detail and she she puts out such amazing content. She's currently working on some really exciting stuff to do with AI and data and the racial bias that's included in AI and data. So check out her socials for that. I think you can find her on uh, socials, which, is, which will be under The Social Detail. Fantastic. I will also link that in the show notes. And uh, what book are you reading? I'm reading uh, several books at the moment. I'm terrible for this. But the two books that I'm reading most actively right now uh, are books recommended by my previous design partner, Justin Shearer. And he is a great, he's great for book recommendations. He's such a great bookworm. Uh, He recommended Ruined by Design by Mike Monterio. And I'm absolutely loving this book. It's so such an in-depth look about the ethics of the design industry and the tech industry. And I just love Mike's perspective. He, he cracks me up as well, the way that he writes. And the second book that I'm reading is a, a book about 
cultural differences in across business because I work internationally and I, I travel for different conferences. I really wanted to understand how different cultures approach different ways of working. And this were, this book is called The Culture, Culture Map, and it's by somebody called Erica. I can't remember her last name at the moment, but it's um, The Culture Map is the name of the book. And it's absolutely fascinating look into how different places around the world, how they, how they do their business. So in Asia, how building social relationships can really, going out drinking and, and getting to know somebody and their family helps you uh, work with them better. Whereas, you know, the apparently the, the Dutch and some of the European countries are incredibly straightforward with their criticism and feedback. And, you know, all these kinds of really interesting insights to help you work uh, across cultures a lot better. Oh, fantastic. I, I recently read Ruined by Design by Mike Montero and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I also highly recommend that book. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we share profits from the advertisements with all of our guests. We don't have any advertisements yet, by the way, but we're working on it. Um, are there other ways the listeners can support you? No, sadly not at the moment, but what I would love for the listeners to do if they're able to is Ushahidi has donations. It takes donations. It takes any donations that you're willing and able to give. I would be really grateful and honored if you enjoy listening to me in any way, shape or form. If you were willing to chuck a few dollars towards Ushahidi's efforts, it actually actively helps them do the work that they do. Most of the donation work, donation money goes directly to the people uh, to offer free free um, support uh, for the tech. So it goes directly to the organizations which use Ushahidi's technology. Fantastic. I know I've said I've link, I'll link lots of stuff in the show notes. That's one that will be there for everybody to click on. Please support Ushahidi. Um, where is the best place for people to find you? Depending on what kind of content you want to see from me. I mean, my Twitter, I would recommend my Twitter, which is at Errol Does Design uh, on, on the Twitters. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a mix of design stuff, diversity stuff, um, and then just memes and silly things a lot of the time. But you will be able to see most of the stuff that I'm up to, a few hot takes on, on design and tech and politics and humanitarian work there. Um, if you're interested in silly photos, I'm Errol Fox on Instagram. Uh, and then you can also find me on Medium as well if you're interested in the kinds of things that I, I write about, uh, which is a lot of stuff to do with humanitarian design work, uh, a lot of stuff to do around how personal topics like empathy um, around mental health and through your own personal experience, how that can affect you as a designer, especially when you're doing research. So you can you can find me on Medium uh, under Errol Fox as well. Fantastic. One of my favorite kinds of Twitter accounts, lots of various <laughs> types of content. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? So if you're interested in hearing more about open source design, if that has in any way piqued your interest, like, hey, what is open source software? What is what is design's role within open source software? I've never heard of those two things being uttered before. Or maybe you're a designer that's never heard about open source software. I would absolutely love to talk more about this. Uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with me about that project, which is opendesign.shahidi.com or the uh, Open Design Is on Twitter. So the Twitter handle is Open Design Is. And I'm part of the open source design 
forum as well, where this is a community of people that have been going for many years that are dedicated to the idea of designers participating in open source software. I am a huge, huge fan of the potential for open source software to really uh, take off in the design community. So if that's something that's interested you uh, when I've mentioned it in, in this uh, podcast, then please check out those those things or drop me a line. And I'm super excited always to talk about open source design. Errol, thanks so much for being on Bezier. And it was such a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. This has been super cool. I love podcasts as well. You do, you do the good work 